Hello everyone, it is that Weems guy here for another episode, and it's we're recording this Sunday, October the 15th at about 8.13 p.m. Eastern Time, and joining me tonight is Mr. Randy Watt, uh, who is, was on a previous episode, and he's coming back tonight. Uh, Randy, if you would explain to everyone who you are and what your background is. Sure. So um, I spent 36 years with the Ogden, Utah Police Department, and the last four of those as chief. Longtime SWAT guy, longtime firearms guy, uh, was a lead trainer for the National Tactical Officers Association for 25 years, uh, tactics and training, and, and uh, got around a lot. I also, uh, I was in the uh, Army National Guard, started out as a private, retired as a colonel, all of it with the uh, 19th Special Forces Group, which is headquartered in Utah, has a battalion there, but we're spread across nine states. So I spent 33 years, 10 months. Uh, in the Army National Guard, active duty and guard time, uh, three trips to the war, a year at the Army War College. And in reference to you know things we were probably going to discuss tonight, uh, counterterrorism is the is a primary job of special forces. It's one of those seven missions, uh, counter counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, you know, those kinds of things. At the War College, uh, which is a year, essentially a year long, 10 and a half months long, um, one of the things you do is you you in order to get the masters in strategic studies you have to do a strategic research project and so uh, my strategic research project that i chose uh, was uh, at that time i'd just come back from iraq i had done afghanistan 0102 and uh, iraq uh, six and seven and i went to the war college assigned to the war college in 2009 and uh, but during the previous time I've been to the war, but I'd also been in command uh, positions and key staff positions with the 19th Special Forces Group and you know, traveling and dealing with. Uh, we had units in four of the com geographic combatant commands, uh, exercising various missions to support or direct action missions related to uh, countering terrorism. So I've, I've been you know, dealing with this. And so when I got to the War College and I picked a subject, it was uh, can the U.S. actually defeat Al Qaeda? Can you can you do that? And and uh, so my research project was on that. It was very very detailed. I had a great mentor for that project. The War College professor was a former uh, Special Ops Air Force Special Ops uh, MH53 uh, Pablo pilot uh, with a great deal of experience, uh, both combat experience and, uh, and peacetime experience. And so over the course of eight and a half months, I wrote that uh, strategic research uh, project. It is published. It is out there. Um, I sent you a copy, as you're aware. And uh, periodically, I get calls from um, universities and different people saying, you know, I'm using this. As, are you sure it's okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's a published it's a published article. So anybody who wants it can find it. Can U.S. defeat al-Qaeda? Uh, Colonel Watt. Now, what you can do is you can put any terrorist group name you want in there. You don't have to use Al Qaeda because it's it's that way. And and we'll talk about you know what terrorism is, what it isn't, who the players are, those kinds of things. A little bit of history because it was our mission. Actually, began the very first uh, book on terrorism I read. I was a brand new Special Forces soldier. It was 1984 or five. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu had written a book called uh, How the West Can Win. And, uh, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, his brother, Jonathan, had been uh, 
killed at Entebbe, the raid in Entebbe. Uh, he was the only casualty that the Israelis took, uh, and he was the leader of that uh, special infantry unit that conducted that uh, operation that rescued all those uh, Israelis from Uganda. And, uh, and so he had dedicated the book to him. And then along the way, because of, you know, here I am in the Guard and National Guard, Army National Guard. So my police career and my guard career running side by side, and we're doing things over, you know, I'm doing SWAT stuff. And, and uh, as you remember, through the 80s and 90s, and particularly into the 90s, we began getting more and more terrorist events. And then in the late 90s, around in 2002, Salt Lake City, which is just 35 miles down the road from me, had the Winter Olympics. And so um, I was a SWAT lieutenant by then, and I was the co-chair of the tactical subcommittee to write the tactical plan for dealing with any violence, including terrorism, uh, during the Winter Olympics. Myself and an FBI agent, an incredible FBI agent by the name of John Uda, who was the commander of the FBI's regional enhanced SWAT team out of Salt Lake City. And so um, the, the feds came in, gave us a lot of resources, uh, so for about three, three and a half years prior to the Olympics, we really delved into terrorism. We really delved into the TTPs that are tactics, techniques, procedures utilized uh, by the groups and the various things and, and how they do that. So we spent a lot of time and spent significant amounts of the Fed's money you know, getting ready for the Olympics. My city had two venues. Uh, of course, you know, they call it the Salt Lake City Games. It was really the Utah Games because Salt Lake City had a few venues, but they were spread all across, literally across the northern half of the state. Um, but along came 9-11 and I ended up within just a few weeks after 9-11, I was a special forces company commander then and my company was mobilized and sent to Afghanistan in December of 01 to December of 02. We were in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. So uh, so this has been a subject in, uh, that I have a great deal of background in, I've actually participated in, I've actually uh, conducted operations against and been successful in removing some players from the field. Uh, and um, and I've continued to track it, watch it. Uh, I retired from the Army National Guard in uh, 2015. So um, I was in command positions with those kinds of missions and supporting those kinds of missions right up until then. Yeah, you're talking about the Olympics there. 96 Atlanta hosted the Olympics and venues were spread all across uh, North Georgia. Matter of fact, the University of Georgia football stadium is where the soccer venue was right. held. And so there's still guys around here that worked uh, those events back then. Uh, when I was in the academy, Richard Jewell dropped in mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. to visit one day. And right. uh, everybody knows the story of Richard Jewell. And he was driving a uh, gold letter edition Toyota Ford Runner. And one guy kept making Richard Jewell bomb jokes and stuff, you know, kind of behind the behind the back and the scenes, you know, and everything. Finally, somebody called him out on it. And uh, Richard got to messing with him. He was like, go over there and touch my truck. And the guy's like, oh, no, 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 no. I dare you. Go over there and touch my truck. And so we're all watching. The guy walks over and he kind of just gingerly reaches out and touches the truck and jerks his hand back. And Richard Jewell says, I bet that's the only truck you ever touched that Tom Brokaw paid for. 
That was a good one. Well, you know, what's interesting is uh, the NTOA conference, National Tattoo Association conference, the year before those Olympics was in Georgia, solely because that position that was taken in order to help train that. That was the first, I taught the bus assaults for that conference. And that was uh, Larry Glick, who was then the executive director of the NTOA, had called me personally and said, look, I've heard about you. I know your background. Uh, would you come teach for the NTOA, teach bus assaults for us? And I said, sure, uh, I'm happy to do that. And I taught for them, moved in more into the leadership, tactical team leadership right. and strategic leadership over the years. But uh, it, was, it was 25 years of working for the NTOA. I wrote the right. on leadership column in their magazine for eight years, 32 issues, because they do it quarterly. And uh, two or three of those were about terrorism as we had, um, as because I would be gone to the war and then I would come back and and we, we would go on about that. So yeah. I read the post that you made on Facebook last night and I tried to fight that battle several days ago and I finally just deleted them because I got tired of reading the, the nonsensical comments that were coming back in my direction. Sure. This picture that shows guys parachuting down. And yep. of course there's the, yep. the, why would anybody need AR-15? And what, you know, the implication is that's the terrorist parachuting into Israel. Right. Well, when I first started seeing that pop up in my Facebook news feed, I got on my Google box and started trying to research it. And the picture is supposedly of a Egyptian parachute team parachuting into a stadium before a sporting event. That's what, and, that's what they're saying, yeah. yeah. And, you know, of that particular picture, uh, but you're, you've said that there is some evidence of uh, some para, what, paragliders. Paragliders, correct. Yeah. Right. Now, my understanding, I, I know nothing about parachuting and paragliding. Paraglider is actually man-powered takeoff and landing. They don't have to jump out of an airplane for that, right? Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a motor motorized, paraglider is a motorized unit. Okay. So you... It's a it's a, a, a speed wing, what's called a speed mm-hmm. wing, but it had you you're sitting in essentially a, a frame chair with a right. propeller behind you, and, and uh, that's what drives it. And so you start out with the line strung out and the and the kite right. uh, behind you spread out on the ground, and then as you pick up speed, that wing comes up above you. That speed wing comes up above, and then it picks you right. up and you fly it. It's very slow, but it has been used by the Iranian Republican Guard uh, uh, Corps for years in the Middle East. Uh, it has been one of their signature activities. So when that picture when that picture came out in the post I made, people were, in in my opinion, making you know too much fun of this. Um, it was you know it was directed at, and and I wasn't. I wasn't really trying to portray it as the real thing because I didn't know. What I was trying to say was, look, Israelis reported parachutes. Um, Israelis, in fact, very in the early beginning, some some of the witnesses had said that they thought that uh, these parachutes, parachutes were part of the, the um, part of the festival. And if you remember how this thing started, there was a large festival, and Hamas hit that festival. Uh, with all these people in the streets, particularly Israelis in the streets, but there were also Palestinians in the street, and the uh, and Hamas was not very uh, selective about you know who they were killing. They were just making this statement. 
And so my point was, uh, look, you know, you guys look at this and you see something fun or funny and, and you're using it as this vehicle to say, you know, why you should have 30 round magazines and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of nonsense following that picture. And, and so I decided to, to say what I see in that. And if that were real, this would be what I see. Uh, and then, you know, uh, some people start saying, well, it's not true. It's an Egyptian parachute team. Well, yes, it may, it, it may be, and it likely is. It likely is an innocent thing, but I don't know too many parachute teams that put that many parachutes in the air. Uh, you know, you get five, six, or seven guys, and I've been on parachute team. Um, and so um, I was a halo guy as an SF guy. And so I understand what it takes to do that. And then when it started coming out, well, it looks like those were paragliders. And the Israelis have recovered some of the paragliders, a number of them, during the um, initial attack. And uh, and so, yeah, there were parachutes, I guess you could call them. They're actually a speed wing, like I said, attached to a motorized chair, but a motorized rail, sand rail. Mike, um, Mike, And so that's when I went in, went in and did an update because the same things are true. Uh, first, in order to be able to be capable of flying paragliders or dropping parachutes, there's a tremendous amount of training and support, uh, logistics, all kinds of different things, armament, all the stuff to do that and to train and rehearse those kinds of infiltrations into a specific target to take off and land those vehicles and do the various things. Um, that There are a lot of moving parts to that. And so, obviously, my opinion, and we can talk about the why, but there was a very large intelligence failure. Um, you know, the Israelis have had intelligence operators for years embedded in a lot of these groups, and they have good sources. The Israelis run really good source operations in terms of developing the sources within the, the communities where, I mean, these are... The Israelis are living with their terrorists next door, literally <laughs> next door. And I'm not being facetious. Uh -huh. That house in that part of Israel houses yeah. people, you know, terrorists. So uh, they tend to be very good at this. And then they are supported by our intelligence system. And I'm telling you that firsthand. Uh -huh. I don't think it's news to anybody, but they are, we spend a fair amount of time uh, working with the Israelis and working unilaterally uh, to develop intelligence sources and then passing information back and forth with the Israelis. So the fact that this many people could do all the logistical, create all the supply trains, move all the material, move all the people, train and rehearse for these types of things, and we didn't have any information on it, and the Israelis didn't have any information on it, tells me that we had a significant, significant problem in, in the intelligence. And I've been, in particularly in the last five, six, seven days, I've been listening to various intelligence experts in various, uh, on various programs and various chat rooms and so on, talk about the why and postulate ideas about the why, but everybody agrees this was a significant intelligence failure. Yeah, as, as you alluded in your post, they had to go somewhere yeah. and train the people to do that. And then they had to have an assembly area, you know, launch mm -hmm. site takeoff, all that kind of yeah. stuff. That's 
that's not something that just a bunch of guys sat around in a room and said, Hey, let's go do no. this. That took no. time. That took funding. It took moving people, you know, large distances so they could do that training where it was not under a watchful eye. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. And so you think about fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. So how far away from your intended landing zone can you be to start from? Because you're carrying the weight of, of the terrorist. You're carrying the weight of his weapons. You're carrying the weight of his ammunition of any explosives, hand grenades, anything he's carrying, you know, uh, there are just like any other object that flies, right, there are limits to what you, you can do and how much you can carry and how far you can fly. Um, to fly in any kind of a formation in order to put multiple shooters into the same general area requires that you fly in some kind of formation or a series of small groups flying from starting from different points. Well, the more points they start from, the greater the likelihood of a satellite or a person on the ground or a, a farmer seeing, you know, whatever it is uh, happening, the, the greater the likelihood. So there's a gr there's a great deal of, you know, for, you got to acquire these things somewhere. You know, you you, you don't they're, they're made, they're purchased. These are if you're going to do this, then you're going to have a fair, you're going to have a, a qualified and quality speed wing. You're going to have a qualified and quality motor and propeller. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things are built specifically and, and they're only built by a few companies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, and, uh, and of course the Iranians build them. They build a lot of things that are used by terrorist groups in various places. And, so you got to move them. You got, you know, I don't know if there were 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, however many of these were, but um, if, if you're planning on 20 guys hitting a landing zone, you're going to put 25 of these up with people. You're not going to put 20, right? So you've got all of these things and, and, and the weeks of time involved and, and, you know, and moving because you not only had this initial assault, but it triggered uh, additional activity from cells, individuals and cells within Gaza. So they had weapons, they had ammo, they had explosives, they had variety of things, they had vehicles. Um, so all of that has to be set up. And then you have the Hamas leader who says, who gets on with an Arabic interviewer on, and you can find this video it's just right there everybody's been showing him and he discusses look we've been we were lulling the israelis for two little over two years into thinking that that we wanted a political solution and the whole time we were training equipping and preparing our forces specifically for this attack on this festival so that's two years of missed <laughs> intelligence that, that's it's yeah. hard to Hard to see. It's hard. It's hard for me to accept because the Israelis, that the units that I've worked with over the years, and the intelligence is is outstanding. So, but the the internal politics of Israel, much like the internal politics in the United States, have been very distracting for for both governments. Let's uh, identify the players because, you know, obviously Hamas is in the news 
a lot right mm -hmm. now. And my understanding is they are directly linked to uh, Iran. But, you know, in the last couple of days, Hezbollah has popped up mm -hmm. and they're over in Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken. They are. They're based out of Lebanon. Yep. All right. So if you, if you would kind of give the audience a rundown of who's Hamas, sure. who's Hezbollah, uh, I guess, you, sure. you know, who, who was ISIS, who and who are the big national players backing them? And what are the linkages? Yeah, so, what are the rivalries? Yeah. Well, you're going back. Historically, you're going back into the 60s. Um, you're, you're going back even well, even before you're going to 50s. This thing starts happening in the 50s. But one thing I want to make perfectly right up front terrorism is not a specific group or ideology. Um, terrorism is a tactic. That's all it is. It's the use of violence or the threat of violence to change the behavior or existing government of a group of people. Gangbangers commit acts of terrorism, right? Cartels commit acts of terrorism. It's using violence or the threat of violence to change the behaviors of, of people or government. Uh, and that's it. So what you've got is you've got these different ideological groups that are willing to utilize violence in order to achieve their objective. And when you think of the Middle East, when, when you say terrorist, since the 70s, early 70s, Everybody thinks in terms of Islamic extremists, and some people forget about the Irish Republican Army. Some people forget about Sendero Luminosa. Some people forget about Red Brigades, some, which are, is a Marxist terrorist. You know, some people forget about these, these various groups. But just think in terms of terrorism being a tactic applied by people attempting to make some violent change um, in, within their, their region and so on. So um, you go back, you go back to the beginnings of, of terrorism. You go back to 1972 um, with the Olympics, um, and uh, and uh, the uh, terrorists who took over the Israeli athletes' village took the wrestling team hostage, and and then the Germans in Munich, and the Germans trying to figure out what to do, and then so you have this catalytic event um, that creates in the minds of many the need for counter-terror forces, teams capable of rescuing people and so on. And, and uh, I know you're quite a bit younger than me, but you remember those times building and suddenly we start seeing the existence of teams. You know, the SAS had, had a great deal of unconventional warfare experience in Malaysia and in uh, Brunei and in various areas, you know, from World War II, from, from their days as in dealing with the uh, desert with the Germans and others in the deserts. And they were a very specialized unit. So now they receive an additional mission and that mission is begin preparing. So, so the British SAS becomes the lead element in the world that develops a so-called counter-terrorist capability. And then lo and behold, in Princess Gate in 1980, they demonstrate the true professionalism and the true capability of, of doing that uh, with the Iranian embassy. <clears throat> so you have this Islamic this, this this small amount of, of Islamic extremists in the Muslim community, in the Ummah, who believe that they can accomplish certain aims that support their understanding of the ideology by terrorist acts. As part of this, you have this several thousand year old animosity 
by them directed towards the Jews. And, and so uh, in accordance with that, you have this underlying ideological enmity, which is not shared by the Jews. The Jews are not trying to exterminate the Islamic extremists, but the Islamic extremists are trying to exterminate the Jews. Um, and so, and then you have, as a result, you know, in World War II, 1947, 1948, you have the UN, which is essentially in those days, it's new, it's run by the US, and you have them saying it's time to give, as a result of the war, you know, to the victor go the spoils. So the Western powers, they begin reshaping the world. You have, you have literally across Asia, across Middle East, you have borders being redrawn to suit uh, things. Happened after every war. Uh, the borders of Afghanistan, uh, often people fail to realize those borders were put in place in 1919, 1920, somewhere in there, after World War One. And uh, and it changed the dimensions and dynamics of those countries. But the locals didn't recognize those borders. Right. right? And so so these things happen Well, you have this you have this enmity that's occurring and you have this rise of of anti-Semitic terrorist activity and you have these groups. The big group behind everything that has a long history is the Muslim Brotherhood started in Egypt back in uh, in the 60s, slightly before that, but this ideology of we're going to, we're going to redesign the Middle East in favor of the Muslim community, the Ummah, and, uh, and as part of that, we're going to eradicate the Jews. And, and you saw the Muslim Brotherhood grow in strength. And then there began to be splinter groups off the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, these were Sunni uh, Muslims. You have the two big, you have the two big community splits. Over on the Sunni side is where Wahhabism and Salafism live. And then over here, you have uh, the Shia Ali, which has been shortened to Shia, which are the supporters of Ali. And so the Shia uh, Muslims and the Sunni Muslims, they each consider the other to be apostates. Uh, but they will... You know, they will put that aside periodically, not often, periodically to fight a common enemy. And and both of them for years have recognized the United States being the key supporter of Israel and Israel as their enemies. And they want to destroy the Western lifestyle. They know the United States is the power. So you, you began to see the hijacking of, of airliners and you began to see the the, the attacks on, on shipping and the attacks on uh, embassies and so on. You began to see this growing movement and effort through the 70s, 80s. Uh, then in the, in the 80s, it, it kind of calmed down. And then in the 90s, it began to build again. And you remember we had the attack on three of our embassies, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, you know, uh, different places um, in 90. 93 through 97 that identified this new group, Al-Qaeda. Well, Al-Qaeda came out of the Soviet-Afghanistan war. Um, Al-Qaeda means the base, and that's what it truly was. Um, Bin Laden, who was wealthy son of one of a hundred something kids of the, of the Sheikh, uh, 
but he's wealthy. Um, and so uh, his, his, father had, his father had been the key in construction for across the Middle East and made millions and millions of dollars building ports for ships and you know, trains and you know, various things needed and uh, big in construction. So uh, bin Laden himself was sent to school to be an engineer. He did not finish. He was sent to Egypt to go to school. But what he did do while he was there, he fell into the Wahhabist mindset. And uh, and so um, then he went to the Sudan and he began putting together terrorist attacks. And the Sudan caught wind of this. And uh, he had done a few things. Some of his supporters had done a few things, small things in the Middle East area, North, North uh, East Africa area. So the, the Sudan said, look, this guy's, this guy's trouble. So they forced him out of the country. They ejected him. They said, you, you deported him. We went to Yemen uh, for a while and uh, began continuing stuff. Well, then the Soviets invade 1978. The Soviets invade uh, Afghanistan. And this is, you know, if there's one thing, um, if there's one thing that particularly Sunni Muslims hate more than um, the uh, Christian, it's godless heathens, meaning the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so you, Pakistan opens its doors to supporting the Mujahideen in fighting the Soviets. So bin Laden, he's providing money and he provides this training camp called the base. And it's funded by the United States. We gave money to bin Laden. We helped build the capacity. We had special forces and CIA guys in Pakistan and clandestine ops across the border to support them in the fight against the Soviets. And it was part of how Ronald Reagan broke the Soviets. It's how he, you know, uh, this whole this whole process. So um, the, eventually, after about 10 years, this, the Soviets um, withdraw they go home, they go back across the river into the former Soviet states for a while, and then the Soviet Union collapses. But in the meantime, all of this money, all of this training, all of this stuff, these groups start spreading out. And bin Laden now turns his attention to the great Satan. And um, out of that comes 9-11 and this stuff. And then as we begin which is the byproduct of this. We begin doing counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan. And we start identifying Yemen as being a hotbed where people are training. We start sending special units into these places. It begins spinning up the ire of the, and it gives the perfect opportunity for other groups, small groups to begin to expand. When Al Qaeda gets hit so hard, and it's broken up badly in Afghanistan, other Elements come up, takes place. But then the big one was when we go into Iraq. When we go into Iraq in 2003, because um, Iraq was part of the hotbed of, of terrorism, there were there were people being trained there. There was this constant Kurd versus um, Iraqi issue, and we'd been supporting clandestinely supporting the Kurds for quite a few years to keep them from being annihilated, uh, and so. You had these regional players, you had Turkey, you had Syria, you had different things happening. And, and uh, in Iraq, the pipeline feeding terrorists into the fight. So from, from this split comes AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, right? 
and uh, it's taken over by a guy who um, who had been a key player in Iraq and had had sworn fealty allegiance to uh, bin Laden and Zawahiri. But he begins. Um, he is such a zealot, such a at a, a level of zealotry in Wahhabism that he's getting these fighters from Syria, from Turkey, from Uzbekistan, from Tajikistan, from Kazakhstan, and they're coming through this pipeline through Turkey and into Syria, and, and from Syria into where they're needed in Iraq. So you have this this pipe, and these these people have no allegiance to Iraq. So they do not mind at all when the village shakes and uh, start objecting to housing them and feeding them because they're taking their daughters and wives as their own. They're, if, if, they're, if Muslims are, uh, you know, Iraqi Muslims are objecting to them, they kill them. Um, they make public spectacles out of them. Uh, Iraq has always had and kind of softly dealt with uh, a gay population. AQI says, we're not softly dealing with anything. And they begin tossing them off roofs and you know, it becomes a sport to kill uh, gay Iraqis. And, and so you have this uptick in violence in AQI. But in fact, what you have is Zawahiri, number two guy in Al Qaeda, sends a message. And you know, we, we got a copy of that message, our intel, to um, the leader of AQI and said, look, you got to stop this. You got to stop killing Muslim brothers. You got to stop this. Uh, you're turning part of the Muslim world against us. And, um, and he didn't stop. Uh, but what happens is the, um, you have the awakening. You have the tribal awakening happen in which these tribal leaders now start saying, look, we're, the Americans are a better support to us. They're going to, the Americans aren't raping and killing our daughters and stealing our wives and taking our daughters captive and killing our male sons. The Americans aren't doing that. And so uh, yet, you know, in the Sunni triangle, you had the home of the, of the, of AQI. So we begin this very concerted effort with their help and we, we wipe out AQI. In the meantime, you have Syria become destabilized. You have Turkey, you know, Syria. You have Russia. Russia wants this pipeline that comes down and goes through Syria and goes over to the Mediterranean. They've been working on this deal for a while, so they're they're supporting Assad. They're they're supporting Syria, and uh, and uh, the U.S. is saying, no, this is not going to happen because they're destabilizing the region. And you have this this Syria, this carry on Syrian piece. In the meantime, and sorry it takes so long getting there. You got Iran sitting over here, and Iran when when we enter Iraq. And we begin, keep in mind that the people in, particularly in the lower, in the bottom of Iraq, what they call the, what the Iraqis called the swamp people, were Shia Muslims. And they were considered second-class citizens in Iraq, and they were targets of, of a number of vendettas and so on and so forth. So Iraq, Iran, for years, has been trying to shore up the Shias down here, very you know, poverty-stricken, and so on. And so... Iran hates the U.S. with an absolute passion, right? And so here's their opportunity. So you began to see cross-border attacks. You began to see paragliders from the Iranian um, guards, the 
what they call the Quds Force, which is the Iranian Republican Guard Corps. Quds Force is the most zealous group, most highly trained group within uh, the IRGC. So the Quds Force, and they're running literally terrorist attacks. They're killing Americans. They're providing the uh, the explosive, uh, the EFPs, explosively formed projectiles, which are knocking out our tanks, knocking out um, personnel carriers. They're kidnapping uh, when I was there in 06 07. They dressed up like the US and they used black suburbans that they brought over, that they drove, you know, over, snuck into the country and they drove right into a small US outpost and everybody thought they were part of the US coming in and they engaged in a small firefight and killed some Iraqi guards and they took four Americans. They killed some Americans in the building and they kidnapped four Americans, put them in the suburbans and were leaving. The good thing was we had a predator over fast enough that we were able to try to interdict them. So they then executed the U.S. soldiers in a in an orchard, but we were able to track them and follow them and, and put an end to most of them. Um, and so you, you get the point. So you have this government military force known as the Iranian Republican Guards Corps, IRGC. And they are the export arm of terrorism, Shia-based terrorism from Iran around the world. Okay. And they are charged with the mission of conducting terrorist operations against the U.S., against Israel, against the West, including Britain. And so you have these small teams of Iranian Quds Force members. You had a couple of situations. You had a dance, uh, a disco tech in Germany get hit by IRGC operatives. You had some things happen. Um, and their job it is also to, when they place these cells, is also to move the materiel, the means, the weapons, and those kinds of things. At the same time, their job is to build up proxy forces. And these are plausibly deniable terrorist forces that can work for the IRGC, right? And so um, that's the sound of a fairy horn behind me um, <laughs> out here in the Bay in San Diego. The, um, and so you have these two primary Shia terrorist groups that get formed. You have Hamas, which gets formed in the mm -hmm. outer area of uh, and they're made up of Palestinians, which was formed in the outer areas surrounding Israel. And then they're over time moved into Israel as part of this Palestinian group. When when the uh, Israelis give the Palestinians Gaza and they give them part of the West Bank, this influx of of uh, Palestinians includes members of Hamas. And then over time. In Gaza, Hamas becomes, and you'll remember all the various negotiations. You remember the the PLO, um, Yas, um, Arafat, Yasser Arafat, mm -hmm. PLO, and as they're bargaining and attempting to bargain with Israel, and Israel is slowly capitulating in different ways over time, they give control of the essentially the government of Gaza to Hamas. So it's Hamas leaders. And Hamas now has control of the area. One of the things that people don't realize, Israel uh, is, is fairly well off economically. 
Gaza, the Hamas-controlled area, is terrible poverty, terrible medical, right? But it's a hotbed of because the, the ideology says this is all the fault of the Jews. The reason you're poor is the Jews. The reason you're sick is the Jews. The reason, right? So they're growing these kids and these others, and Hamas is getting larger. The other one you have is up in Lebanon. You remember the Beirut bombing in 1984, Muslim Brotherhood. Um, you remember those uh, times up there. So it became a hotbed of terrorist activities, small groups and factions, and they began to, to grow them. And the one that became dominant um, with an infusion of personnel from Iran and support from Iran was Hezbollah. So Hezbollah is also a Shia terrorist group that is supported, supplied, uh, directed uh, by Iran through the, by the mullahs in Iran, through the uh, uh, Republican Guard, through the Iranian Republican Guard Corps, and particularly the Quds Force. The Quds Force goes up there and trains them and so on and so forth. So they're, they are positioned in Lebanon on the northern border of, of Israel. And then internally, inside Israel, over by the sea, you've got Gaza. And internally, you've got these terrorist groups. And you've got tunnels, supply tunnels. You've got a variety of things. So this, has been, this was shaping for years. And, uh, and then it came to a head. And, and you're seeing the action now. So Hamas has this thing going. Israel's coming in to wipe them out, which they are going to do. Um, a number of them will escape, and then they, you know the you can't kill the ideology. You can read right. this, this research, but but more importantly, in the north you've got Hezbollah starting to run cross border operations into Israel. Bit of a distraction causes Israel to fight a two front war against terrorists. So they've got to divide some of their forces uh, to handle it, uh, and then there are a whole number of political ramifications across the Middle East that will result. Right. So at what point Israel goes in and just like completely lowers the boom in Gaza and is like actually going through retribution, bringing the fight, taking out uh, Hamas there? Is there a chance that Egypt, Jordan, or Iran itself, they're going to come in and directly intervene on behalf? Or is this all proxy? Well, right, right now it's proxy. The, the, the Iran is the missiles that are being used in, that are being fired from Gaza. How do you get hundreds of missiles into Gaza, right? right? Without people knowing that, well, you, you do it over time. And again, they were preparing for two years for this fight, but preparing for years for that. Where were those missiles coming from? Well, the closest person to supply them is Hezbollah in the north. And there is a direct accepted supply route from Iranian with Iranian missiles. And these are Iranian-made missiles, by the way. That's, there's no doubt about it. And they're moved up into, um, into Lebanon and then brought in through tunnels and clandestine you know, travel. The, Kat, the Katyusha rocket family has everything from the BM-12, which is about three foot tall, which is the most common one you see used in the, the multiple launch rocket system, the MLRS, those 
battery of tubes that fire. It's an area weapon. It's not a, it's not a precision weapon. To the larger rockets, the 12 foot long um, and 17 foot long versions, which are large rockets. Now, you know, Israel has the Iron Dome protection system, which we help them build, but it doesn't get everything, unfortunately. Some things get through. But you think of the logistics of moving and positioning these um, and, and getting them in and doing that. So the biggest pro the biggest risk for Israel is to see an expansion. If you remember the Seven Days War, uh, you had everybody in that region, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, um, Lebanon, and other people through Lebanon attacking Israel. Well, Israel beat them all. Um, and uh, and Israel pushed their border out in order to build a buffer. And this is where that claim of land is. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the Palestinian claim in land because that does not exist. That historically has never existed. And these people, the young people and everybody else who say, give the Palestinians back their land, they didn't have any land. Palestine was a geographic region. It was not a people. It was not a a specific group. There were tribes of various people, including Jews who lived there. The Jews have been on that ground longer than anyone since the time of Abraham. So, um, but they did take some land out of their neighbors as a result of the war. And over time, they've allowed some of that back and, and so on. And you get, you get that concept. The biggest problem for Israel is dealing with this without appearing to be attacking Islam, because if they attack Islam, then those other nations are somewhat duty bound right. to defend Islam. So the, the biggest risk for Israel is the politics of dealing with right. this situation without stirring up um, other people. You got Egypt over there on the west, which has a border down at the bottom. You got Egypt. Um, and they border part of the West Bank. And, and in the past, Hamas has attacked Egypt, parts of, uh, you know, uh, of Egypt and Egyptian forces, because the Egyptians have become a little more cosmopolitan and a little less supportive of. Now, keep in mind that the Egyptians are Sunni Muslims and Hamas is Shia Muslims. And so you have, so you have this bit of a thing. Well, Israel, in the last several days, asked Egypt for support said, look, uh, can you help us with this piece? Because they're attacking you too, can you? And Egypt said, no, we're going to remain neutral unless they directly attack us and our country and attacks that constitute more than a nuisance, we're going to remain neutral because uh, they don't want to be seen as taking the side of the Jews against right. another Muslim, against another Muslim faction. There's no way they want to be uh, say that they uh, Israel asked and we agreed that would not be a good thing for Egypt and the imams and the you know keep in mind you're talking about um, you know religious leadership you're talking about government formed around a religious ideology uh, and and that can be tenuous because of the imams and all the religious leaders start saying that the government of Egypt is corrupt and is, you know, is not holding true to Islam, then you can have, a, you can have a considerable, keep in mind, you know, Egypt, um, when, um, 
Egypt's not known for its people, peaceful transitions of power. No, it does not have peaceful transitions <laughs> of power. And um, I've momentarily lost my mind. Oh, Anwar Sadat. When uh, Anwar Sadat was trying to modernize Egypt and was going to work with Malcolm Begin and others and have, try to have this peace with Israel, Muslim Brotherhood killed him. Uh, his own bodyguards were a significant number of them were members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they turned on him, killed him in that. And you remember that those days. So, uh, so Egypt there on one side, and then the other side you got Jordan and Syria, and of course Lebanon in the north, and they're they are predominantly Muslim countries. So, how Israel does this? How Israel goes. Right now, Israel has a position they can state and progressive leaders in Islam can say, look, Hamas first, you know, Saudi, Saudi Arabia is Sunni, the, the king, and it's the kingdom, right? It's Mecca. It's when it comes to Sunni and everybody else is, is coming there and doing that. Right? They can say Iran is its own animal. You know, it's, it's, a, it's the apostate state of the Shia Ali, which is the supporters of Ali, um, and uh, and Israel can deal with these proxy people, and there's not a need for us to get involved. But if it expands beyond that, you remember back in Desert Storm, um, Saddam was deliberately firing missiles at Israel in an attempt to get Israel to respond, and Israel was getting pissed, and you know we sent batteries of Patriot missiles to Israel to defeat those because we could not afford, if Israel responded, then the whole Middle East had to fight Israel. And we were looking at the potential of a regional and potentially a world war yeah. uh, because Israel responded and took a great deal of diplomacy on our part to convince Israel, look, just, just remain calm. Um, do not respond. We'll help you. And, and then of course, uh, we're there because the fear was, Israel responds. Now all these other Muslim countries have to have to link up together because the Jews have attacked us. And that's the political situation problem that that Israel is having. But um, right now, given the situation, Netanyahu is being very wise and there is a great deal of diplomacy. You're seeing. In fact, what's very interesting to me is the Biden administration is exercising the strongest foreign policy uh, that they have exercised in Three years of government, uh, and by the way, they contributed to this uh, by the weakness of the United States. And this, but they are excellent. When uh, Tony Blinken went into the uh, um, Secretary of State, went into Israel, and from Israel said, "We will support our Israelis. Uh, and we are their number one supporter. We will defend Israel if necessary." Uh, that was the strongest diplomacy ever exercised by the Biden administration. And uh, I think that, you know, that message is clear, but it also puts it at risk. And keep in mind that Russia supports Syria. Um, keep in mind that China has been making inroads into Asia and the Middle East with their um, roads and bridges program. And so there are there are other political sensitivities that could cause a great deal of problems. So how this I am. I am. um cautiously optimistic that Israel is doing it right and that the U.S.'s position has subdued some of the potential, some of the potential for this expanding literally into a world war. Um, but it's still early. Uh, yeah. it's still early. 
you know, you, you bring up the Russia link to Syria. I'm certain that Russia, if they could find a way to stick a thumb in our eye yeah. by helping Syria to get back at us for us back in Ukraine, you know, this is just all darts being, you know, chess pieces being moved around on a, on a global. Yeah. Board. So, from my position, um, rightly or wrongly, but my assessment. So, when the Biden administration took over, they killed uh, the the sanctions, essentially killed the sanctions that Trump had put against the Russians. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the Russians are selling a a lot more oil than people realize. The Russians are getting a lot more hard currency into the country than they realize. Um, Russia, and I, this is going to be this can be hard for a number of people to accept, but Russia is winning the war in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian, I mean, the 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 media is painting a much more favorable picture of the Ukrainians uh, and the and the war situation than is true than really exists. I, I mean, I've got you know. SF guys in Poland and in Kiev that used to work for me. Uh, they're still, yes, I've one of part of one of my units, uh, former units as a commander of the 19th group. One of our other sister, one of our battalions has a headquarters over there right now in Poland, uh, um, managing training and material exchange and so on and so forth. And, uh, the reality on the ground is it's not going anywhere near as well as media would have you believe. Um, Ukraine is a country of 27 or 30 million, right? So half of them are males. Russia's how many hundred million? Just those numbers alone um, will give you some idea of the magnitude of the effort Ukraine has to make. The Ukrainian offensive that was underway has failed. It, it has not produced the results that it was supposed to result, even with all the money that we've given them and all the material we've given them. Um, it would take us, if we were to start manufacturing tomorrow, it would take us seven years, according to the experts, to, if we focused on nothing but replacing the artillery rounds, mortar rounds, rocket rounds, Bond, aircraft bonds it would take us seven years to get back to the stocks we had before this started. We've given that much ammo mission um, things to the to there. One of the problems we have, and this hasn't been answered yet, and I don't know that we will ever be answered that we will know for a fact, but there are reports. Hamas was using uh, quite a few numbers of Hamas were using M4s. They were not using AKs. Um, and it, M4s, you know, that's our baby. The ammo, that's our baby. Well, we're, we now have a very, very good report that the Taliban was selling our M4s and ammunition to Russia, who was, um, providing them to, um, so the, to other groups to try to uh, destabilize us. We've also got reports that the Taliban was directly delivering M4s and ammunition to the Iranians to give to the uh, to give to Hamas, which is a which is a bit of a problem because the Afghans the Afghans are Sunni Muslims and Afghanistan and Iran have a have a very um, tenuous peace, if you will, between them. Um, but you know the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
And so you have these, other, well, if it turns out that some of those M4s, and the Israelis are recovering them, you know, they're killing these people. It turns out some of those M4s are M4s that we left behind in Afghanistan or worse, which is one of the reports. M4s we sold or provided to Ukraine and Ukraine has sold them to someone else uh, for currency or corruption because Ukraine is extremely corrupt. And people don't get that. Look, Zelensky is a hugely corrupt individual um, and his administration is hugely corrupt, but uh, he's our friend. He's our corrupt friend right now. And Putin is not our corrupt friend. He's just corrupt. Uh, so so the, the geopolitical aspects of this whole thing are, are risky. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask about the uh, the Afghanistan material, the the stuff we left behind there, making it in. One, uh, one of the local radio jocks was raising that issue the other day, and that was one of the, the questions I had to ask you about. And you got there. Yeah, we could go on for hours on the debacle well, of us yeah, leaving Afghanistan. Let's just put it this way: yeah. we left. So we left far more material than the Taliban can ever use. So it makes good sense to them to sell it. Mm -hmm. They are, they are economically broke. The Taliban is having a terrible time establishing a government and doing the things that governments do, particularly in building the economy. They don't have money. So it, Anybody who believes that the Taliban isn't selling whatever they can sell to whoever they can sell around the world is a very misguided individual because Afghanistan is broken. Yeah, and, you know, this whole thing, if if it's accurate that it's going to take us seven years to recover our stockpiles, if this breaks out. Yeah, we got a problem. We, we got material problems. And then how are we going to support Taiwan if China decides to, to go in? Yeah, really interesting proposition there. Because one thing I think that um, the other nations are sensing is that the 2024 election is going to produce you know, some interesting results. So then you have the inauguration in January of 2025, and then it's going to take six months to put together a functioning administration of any kind um and so there's this window of time that some of them may think okay if we're going to exploit this and make gains then then now is the time uh china's having some tremendous internal problems uh china's not beating its people very well china economically china you listen to some of the true economists who study in the foreign service who study things, China is, is having a very hard time economically. Uh, they're exporting far more of their funds than, than they're growing. And so there, there are risks to all of this. And, um, and when you're, when the United States is perceived to be as weak as it is, and, and believe me, we are far weaker than we were under previous administrations, Democrat or Republican, we are significantly w- weaker uh, foreign, po- foreign policy-wise, let alone material, let alone troops, let alone capability, it's far weaker than we've been. Probably, probably back to prior to World War II. I mean, you remember World War II when we had military units training with broomsticks as rifles because we didn't have 
the equipment available. We had such a small standing army and we need to spin one up. But what we did have then in those years is we had a tremendous manufacturing capability. We don't have that manufacturing capability in the United States anymore. We have over 30 years exported our manufacturing in this in a lot of cases to the people we're very, very much concerned about now. Um, So trying to build up our own manufacturing strength, let's face it, you know, Taiwan, their biggest industry, which is what China, why China, part of why China wants it, their biggest industry is the making of computer chips that are necessary for the running of computers and computerized machinery. Uh, And, uh, if that's suddenly gone, how rapidly could we spin up our own ability to build computer chips, let alone all of the kinds of things necessary to support a sudden onset in war uh, and manufacture all the all the things we need in war? So geopolitically, this thing is is really risky. And you have everybody. I mean, you have pundits on all sides of this thing. You got, you know, Glenn Beck pounding the table and saying, look, we're we are about to to go to World War Three. Uh, and then you've got other, you know, calmer minded people saying, look, we, we may have to we may have to retrench and reconfigure while bad things happen around the world until we have the capacity to respond. But either way, we are not very capable of a full response today. Yeah, you know, and when it comes down to. You know, whether the United States responds to the help or not and everything and. I get caught personally. I, I get torn on the issue yeah. of going to help other countries that are so-called fighting for freedom or, or whatever have you. Mm-hmm. If France had not intervened on our behalf in the revolution, we wouldn't have won. That's correct. And it, it kills me when you you know people make so much fun of the French. Well, if it wasn't for the French military, the United States would not exist. And, and, in, and in particular, the French capacity to build the weapons of war right. and, and, to, and the willingness to run the blockades, yeah. to run their ships through, whether to bring them around the south or to bring them. But the willingness yeah. to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, who do you thank for that? Benjamin Franklin, because yeah. he's the one sitting over there on the ground negotiating for years yep. uh, with the French and finally winning them over. And so I always want to say, well, it's not our fight. We shouldn't be involved. And I, and I get that on one hand, but then I look and say, well, if France hadn't come in on our, on our behalf and I get, we, we've paid that debt back, but should we help? And this is, this is not an ideological question. I'm asking you to answer right now. I'm just trying to throw this out for sure. the audience. Listen to, to sure. you know, and, and ruminate on, you know, what do we owe other people who are trying to throw off oppressive governments that are, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff, you know, I, I kind of feel a personal obligation at some point in that, you know, based on our own history. But I get the fact that if our roof's leaking, then we need to be worried about our own leaky roof before we start trying to go fix somebody else's. And I don't know what the right answer is. So the, so the schoolhouse answer, when you start talking diplomacy, mm-hmm. when you start talking projecting force, uh, when you start talking about all these factors, when you the 
um, projection of force, the formula of projection force is called dime, D-I-M-E. And, um, and it's, it's based on, on this formula that is, um, that we are acting on behalf of our national interests. Now, and, and then what you're trying to do is you're trying to define what those national interests are. Right? So DIME is diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. That those four factors, you know, those are the four primary factors by which we measure um, our capacity and our capability for and our need to project force. Um, everybody calls the M the big M, that it's in capital letters, military. And the reason is this, when diplomacy fails, okay, when diplomacy fails and you are unable to persuade or influence this opposing idea that is negatively affecting what we believe are our national interests, then the military becomes the tool. The purpose, and this gets lost on people, yeah. Particularly on the left, the, the purpose of the United States military is to break things and kill people. Yep. And uh, and by it's doing politics so, by other means is all it is. Yeah, and that's what Van Klaswitz said. I mean, right? So um, the the purpose of the military is to break the will of the opposing country, nation state, whatever, and that's a key. Think nation state. All right, so that it becomes pointless for them to continue their effort, which is the threat to our national interest. Think back to the Barbary pilots who were seizing American ships and oppressing, right? What is Thomas and Jeff, Thomas, now Thomas Jefferson is president of the United States. What does he do? He says, I'm not putting up with this. He creates a Navy. The purpose of the Navy, and they go over and what do they do? They bombard Tripoli from the sea, from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Right. So they bombard Tripoli and they launch a fighting force from the ships and they uh, and they cause capitulation by the uh, leader of the force. And they free a bunch of Americans. And and there is calm for a mm -hmm. while. No more terrorist impression, impressing of seizing of, of U.S. and other country ships and so on and so forth and impressing sailors into slavery. So national interest. So oil, big national interest, if you're allowing um, foreign countries to have economic control that has negatively impacted the United States, which is, I mean, is a sore spot because we have, we have far more, um, everybody keeps calling it fossil fuels, but the reality is they know now that it has nothing to do with fossils, right? Uh, and it is a natural product of, of the, how the earth is and so on and so forth. So, um, but that message, you know, so we have the ability and we did, we became for the first time ever, well, the first time in more than 90 years, we were, um, uh, independent of the world in terms of our needs. And we were, we were the key exporter and then in comes the Biden administration and they kill that and you know and then we have we have what we have so it's defining those national interests that becomes the problem defining you know clearly what the national interest is is supposedly the 
the foundation for projection of force. Um, the hard the hard time we're having these days is clearly defining national interest. Is protecting Israel our national interest? Yes. The reason is Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, only democracy, true democracy that holds elections, fair elections. And if we are a democratic nation, we believe in the power and the necessity of democracy, which is written right into our documents all the way back to the founding fathers, then yes. Number two, do we have an economic interest in the growth and the continued success of Israel? Yes, we do. So clearly, you know, protecting Israel, defending Israel meets all of the various factors and, and criteria. Does, you know, fighting ISIS in Syria, did that meet our national interest? Yes, the growth of ISIS and their savagery um, and, and what they were doing, the destabilization of the region, yeah, we cannot afford and we don't want a destabilized Middle East. We don't want the Saudis suddenly turning off the spigot because we're reliant now on a number of countries. We're the largest buyer. I don't know if people know this. But we're the largest buyer of Venezuelan oil right now in the world. How did that happen? We're buying we're buying oil from you know from a Marxist yeah. country that I mean. So you got all these factors. So national interest becomes it. Can we can we do that? So. You know, when we're looking at, you know, is there a national interest in stopping uh, China from invading and taking control of Taiwan? Yeah, there's very clear national interest in that. Now the, now the question becomes, are we capable of defeating them? Well, if we had to fight just the Chinese right now, yes, we are. But give the Chinese two or three or four more years because they're spending a huge majority of their GDP on building their military, particularly their seagoing military capacity and capability. Um, they understand, China understands, well, they've been, they've been pushing forward into a wide variety of areas of the Seychelles and the other, um, um, in, the, in the areas around the China the Pacific Rim, of uh, the various grounds, various atolls, various islands, and taking control of them and expanding their territorial limits uh, against, I mean, the Philippines right now is having to deal with the, with the, Japan is afraid of them. We gave Japan four years ago, up until four years ago, or five years ago now, maybe five years ago, up until then, Japan, by the treaty following World War II, was not allowed to have an offensive military capability. Due to China, we changed that. We, uh, Japan negotiated with us and we changed that. Japan now has an offensive, including is building a special forces capability within their, their uh, Japanese infantry. And they were not allowed to have infantry. They were only allowed to have um, domestic military to protect the island of Japan. Now, they, now we've given them permission to have an exportable military in order to protect their interests in the region. Yeah, before we leave the the Middle East and come to the to the last topic I want to get to, I do want to point out to the audience. Yeah, you scroll through your Facebook feed right now and you see all these people where they're I stand with Israel, and then you turn on the news and you see all of this, you know, the counter protests and everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. 
kind of thing. Folks, you don't have to, quote, stand with Israel, end quote, to be completely infuriated by what Hamas has purportedly done in Israel. I, I, I have no allegiance to the Israeli government whatsoever, but I'm infuriated by what happened, you know, to, to those people. Now, we can also argue, okay, how, how could they live so close to their enemy and being Cooper's condition white and everything? That That's all. We, we could have those debates. But evil how much more evil is there than just coming in and murdering babies and dragging women off? Well, it's not new. Right, right. And it's, regardless of whether you believe Israel's government is legit or not or whatever, you can't support that. You know, that, that the actions of Hamas, you care less about Israel. But you gotta hate the evil. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't get the whole thing of well, we have to be yeah, okay. Well, the people that would do that kind of stuff are people that need to be summarily dealt with. So yes, yeah. you go back. Historians who study the life of Muhammad, they divide his his mm-hmm. time into two areas: they pre Medina and post Medina. Pre Medina, he's a religious leader. He's peaceful. He's mm-hmm. you know trying to expand by through pious direction and so on and so forth and then there comes this short period of years where he no longer uh, does this and he begins to build an army he begins to um, conquer parts of the region and in order to have this army they've got to have rewards for Mm -hmm. that so so now they're taking the wives and now they're taking the, the daughters and now they're killing all the males um, and they're except the ones they can en- enslave, and they're plundering all the, the animals and all mm-hmm. any treasures that they have. And so now this army is these individual members of this army are getting wealthy in comparison, wealthier than they've ever been. And they're you know all of the aspects of having multiple wives and concubines available to you, and having riches and so on and so forth. So more and more people start joining Muhammad's army. And so, and of course, Medina being the, at that time, it was an agriculture, it was a crossroads. It was commercial crossroads, the silk mm-hmm. routes and different things that, that as they would export goods. Well, it's the center of control of the region and Muhammad marches on it. And the tribes that are, that run Medina get together. They say, look, he's going to wipe us out. So, he marches triumphantly into the city, and and they capitulate, and there's and there's more booty for all of his army, and so on and so forth. Well, the success of this becomes the norm. So now you have them breaking up into smaller groups uh, uh, with leaders, and they're going off into other regions and conquering it, and and then this builds into you know driving. Oh, Muhammad dies. I think it was five sixty or five sixty two. I think it is. Anyway, I might be wrong, losing my mind there. But anyway, um, but now you have this incredible Muslim conquering expansion as this army grows, and they're going into Southern Europe, and they're going over into Spain, going across North Africa, and crossing over into Spain, and they're taking over. And, um, you know, you have this huge Muslim 
conquest and and then they take and hold Jerusalem. So what happens to the Christians or the all the Christians in Europe? And then you start and you have the first crusade and second crusade and you have all of this. Well, that that all starts with this conquest and this conquest involves a great deal of violence to the locals you know people being burned at the stake people being hung people being you know all the males getting killed and they're you know seizing all the women and just and this just continues over time and then you have the purported writings of of muhammad uh saying i'm sorry the sayings of muhammad that justify this and you know this the, the various things and and so all of this plays a role even down into today but you think of uh, Wahab Wahab you know he wrote that he wrote you know his understanding he wanted to take Islam back to the beginning days he wanted to take it uh, back to those times I think it was um, to the beginning days of, of Muslim and the followers of the prophet which by the time Wahab came along you know it was uh there been quite a shift in Muslim values, and so these this extreme concept of going back and living the times and the days of the prophets, the prophet, I should say, um, this is all part of the justified extremism and Salafists are part of that. So anyway, yeah. we could go on for hours about that. All right. So the the last thing I want to talk about tonight is what are we looking at domestically? It's it's no secret that our southern border has been wide open for the last three years and there's all sorts of you know people coming across our southern border and just being basically just being waved into the united states you talked about the the you know the iranian military that their whole purpose is to export terrorism you'd have to be naive to think about the fact that they're not looking at that they're not moving people across our borders into the U.S. with per, and preparations are, are being made to make attacks here. I, it's it's it, it, you can be an optimist and still see that coming. What are we looking at domestically? What can our audience do to prepare and, and the like? So, and this has been the age-old question for a long time, ever since nine eleven. We have had. Um, we have had terror tactics applied based on some type of allegiance to an Islamic uh, organization, the San Bernardino active shooter. Mm -hmm. That's you know, what that case was. We have been training and, and building up for, for the uh, lone wolf the and many of them are homegrown many of them are radicalized uh, you know they they and and this this group of terrorism islamic not all are but this this side mm -hmm. is so when i say islam i'm not casting aspersions i'm just right. saying right. that you have uh this um, these this group of people who align themselves with that extremist ideology um, and and when they see the signal they think they're seeing, then they act and they become lone wolf and active shooters. They become a variety of things. My concern is, is that, you know, it's, uh, it's like the, 
it's like a I call it a Tom Clancy event because Clancy wrote these you know books around these things, but I call it Tom Clancy event. And my concern is is that there is a another group because that's what 9/11 was. You know, we had 19 Saudis, and they believe there you know now that we're certain of a 20th uh, that we never found, but um, so that there are cells groups that there are a number of people who have been brought in clandestinely, most likely across the border, because we know tens of thousands of, of um, people from the countries we consider to be the ones that are at risk or that cause us risk, that they've come across that border. We know that. Uh, we have captured and released on parole uh, quite a few. Um, so is it possible that contained within those groups are some radical people who have been prepared for some type of mission. I think it's probable more than possible. Now, <clears throat> what will that event be? I couldn't tell you. Um, what, um, what is the likelihood? I, I just can't tell you. One of the problems that, um, that other groups have had in sending, um, Islamic, particularly military-age males here in the United States as they get here. And keep in mind that none of them are coming from affluent countries. There is that those things you know, that's other than Indonesia, um, which is largely Muslim, largest group of Muslims in any one country in the world, by the way, is Indonesia. And these countries are abjectly poor. So they get here in the United States and they get assistance. Their community welcomes them and their community is getting assistance and their community is finding jobs for people. So they're making money. They're living in a reasonable life in apartments. They have all of these um, temptations that the Western country brings to them. And, and so they're oftentimes their fervency uh, in terms of what they're doing um, diminishes rapidly over time. Um, how do you keep them fervent and how do you keep them focused uh, is a big challenge. Yeah. You have, you know, we, as you know, we surveil uh, a lot of mosques because you have mosques. Most mosques are just wonderful places. I go, I've been to a number of mosques visiting with uh, friends. You know, I have brought, um, I brought an Iraqi translator over. He and his family and I used to go to mosques with them and see things and visit with them because then afterwards people would welcome me to have a big barbecue after their worship session, their evening worship session, and people would love God. wonderful places doing good things. But you do have other mosques, and we know those. Um, the one in New York, uh, the Imam is an unindicted uh, co-conspirator in the 9-11 attacks. So what are they learning in there? What are they preaching and teaching in there? So we don't know. Um, Will we have some, yeah, we're going to have some isolated events. Yeah, we're going to have periodic um, shooters. Uh, it's our government's current position to try not to talk about what the ideology of the individual might be or what the background might be, or in some cases, even to release the name because the name itself might be prejudicial to a certain community or part of the community. Um, okay. Um, is there the potential that there is a, a, coordinated uh, attack of some kind, planned, prepared. Yeah, I think there is uh, the potential. Whether or not it 
will happen, I don't know. So in terms of preparation, first, um, and Israel is a good example. If everybody believes everybody in Israel is armed. That was not true. That is not true. Um, but you see what Israel just did? They just authorized, because before, unless you were a current serving reservist, you could not carry your own a long gun or have ammunition for it in your house. They just delivered 10,000 something M4s and ammunition to made it available to the citizens uh, and training. Um, Israel is proof of the importance of the Second Amendment in the United States. Um, law enforcement has been training for this mission for a long time. Active shooter skills are, are perfect for dealing with these things when they erupt and they break out. Uh, we should keep continuing to train that. Um, we should be less and less concerned with gun control and more and more concerned with providing opportunities for good training to people. We should, I think, as a nation be thinking about how to further the business of qualified private individuals, helping people to train and be armed. Um, there are numerous stories coming out of Israel where people grab their long gun or their pistol, moved out, grabbed two or three neighbors and were able to repel an attack on their street or on their houses. Um, there is some value uh, in that. Uh, we should be prepared as a nation um, politically for an attack. We should recognize and realize, and when it happens, we should, uh, rather than you know losing our minds over fault or blame, we should recognize that there are things that we could and should have done or should be doing, and we should fix that piece forward. My concern is, is that you know, our government system is really fractured and yeah. we are divided and polarized. And man, I mean, it, it just seems so divisive and just so antagonistic. I just don't know what it would take to get us back together. But I, I don't know if you remember, oh, I'm sure you do, but 9-12 was an incredible day of patriotism. Yeah. And the weeks that followed were incredible days of patriotism. And I do believe that the Amer true American spirit is larger and greater, and the true American patriots are a larger group in our population that a lot of people want us to think. And I do think that we could deal with and recover from any event. You know, speaking of nine twelve, one of the things I've talked to the young guys about now, you know, that went through these last few years of all the defund stuff and the constant. You know, all the riots of 2020 and everything like that. And they're like, look around, do I really want to keep doing this job? I think it's kind of stuff. It's like, guys, this stuff goes in cycles. I said, and, and you guys weren't around when 9-11 happened and everything that, that transpired after that. It was like, I think for a year and a half, for two years after that, like you go to shut down a road or something around in a, in a special event or whatever, and somebody come up and be griping about the intersection being closed. Well, you know, sir, since nine eleven, they like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't mean, I'm, I'm sorry, and like they just accept the answer and just walk off, yeah, and, and everything. And it's, you know, I don't want to see a bad event happen that triggers going back to that, but. Mm -hmm. uh, we definitely don't want a black swan event. Right. We definitely do not want a black swan event. Um, it throws us into complete chaos. 
but um, I don't, I don't think they're capable of that. I think they're capable of, of having some attacks coordinated on the same day, you know, in, yeah. in several cities, you have some event, but I think local police would quickly deal with those things. Um, you know, the, the one thing that we do worry about on a regular basis, but we have very, very good, um, well, I believe we have very good potential for dealing with this, um, you know, the radiological event, the um, the dirty bomb type of a thing, uh, which has been a big fear for a long time and should be, but um, I think we're prepared uh, to a great degree for that because it's so emphasized for such a period of time and it's still a worry or concern, but you just don't hear much about it. Um, so I, I think uh, I, I would not be fearful or paranoid but what I would do is just be prepared. Uh, and being prepared means a variety of things to a variety of people. Um, we've got the best police forces in the world. We've got the best trained cops in the world. Everybody comes to us to learn. Um, we've got pretty good equipment. I mean, I go back to the days of patrol cars with a pump shotgun with four rounds in a tube, and that's all you had. No wooden furniture. We have patrol rifles. We have designated marksman's rifles in some cities. We have trained officers on how to do it and how to make those decisions. We have good, capable police officers who are domestic, who are our first line domestic response. And we have, um, we're, we're in a, we're in a good place. Uh, but terrorism, the tactic of using violence and fear of violence to change behaviors and the government, um, is our, um, era. That's this is it for us. So we just need to stay more vigilant, and uh, we need to be watching, seeing what goes on around us, and then making judgments and making calls when they're necessary to alert somebody to strange circumstances. And and uh, and I, I I think we're good. I, I'm not saying it won't happen. I think it is likely to happen in some way, whether it's another San Bernardino shooting or a series of San Bernardino style shootings, uh, Boston bombings, you know, those kinds of things. But um, those are tragic and we lost lives and hurt people's lives, but we contained them rapidly and we didn't let them destroy our way of life. Anything else you want to offer in closing? No, I think that's it. All right. How can people find you? And anything you got coming up? Yeah. Um, Randy at srwsplops.com is my email. I'm happy to answer anybody uh, who, has, who sends me anything. Um, and uh, SRW Incorporated, www.srwinc.us um, is how they can find me. And uh, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, uh, Provide any information or expertise, anything that, that might be usable by anyone. Um, I'm not into having philosophical arguments, so don't waste your time. Um, you're as entitled to your opinion as I am to mine. Um, and yeah, I do make occasional mistakes in terms of history and other things. You can point them out if you'd like, but I really don't care because the point is, the point of what I'm saying is true. Well, there you go. Well, sir, thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule while you're on the road uh, to oh, join yeah. us tonight. 
It's always uh, a pleasure to talk to you, Lee. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I hope to shoot with you again soon. Uh, Same here. Same here. All right, buddy. Be safe. I I know you're you're on the road right now for an event, so thank you for taking the time uh, to spend the time with us tonight. And to the audience, know that your most important asset is your time. Thank you for choosing to spend it with us.